For more than five years, Deep State Radio has been on top of all the key foreign policy and national security stories impacting the world. We're grateful to our members who make all of this possible and hope that you will consider supporting our work by becoming a member. Members get access to our expanded offering of exclusive bonus content, the opportunity to participate in discussions via our member Slack community, our weekly member bonus briefs, and our DSR Daily Brief newsletter delivered to your inbox each evening at 5 p.m. Members also receive all of our content via private member feed that you can add to your podcast app of choice. Join now for just $5 per month or $50 per year. Visit thedsrnetwork.com and select Become a Member. And don't miss our upcoming mini-series featuring interviews with some of the key players from David's upcoming book, American Resistance, the inside story of how the deep state saved the nation. Thank you. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to the latest episode of the podcast. I'm your host, David Rothkopf, coming to you from New York City. Since this is our Thursday podcast and we are getting into the home stretch of the election, I want to introduce to you two folks, one of whom you already probably know, who are going to be regulars through the election and help us put all this political stuff in shape. So we're going to each week do a kind of a special on where campaign 2022 is. A new guest, and one I'm delighted to welcome, is Tara McGowan. Tara is the CEO and founder of Good Information and publisher of Courier Newsroom. Hi, Tara. Hi, David. Thanks so much for having me on. I'm excited to be here. Well, we're excited to have you here. Where are you right now as you're speaking to us? I'm currently in New York at a friend's place uh, here for meetings, but I'm often in Rhode Island, which is home base. Excellent. Uh, We like to show a little bit of geographic diversity here (laughs) in what we're doing. And uh, tell folks before we dive in a little bit further and I get to Simon, tell them a little bit about the work that you're doing. Sure. So I'm a former Democratic strategist. I ran a nonprofit organization called Acronym for a number of years. And before that, worked for a number of left-leaning organizations and super PACs, all focused on digital communications. How do we communicate, persuade, inform, mobilize voters using the tools of the internet and social media? I recently stepped down from Acronym last year to scale a company that I incubated there, Courier Newsroom. And Courier Newsroom is a network of eight state and local newsrooms that are all left-leaning. And they focus on reaching less politically engaged Americans where they are online. So all of our journalists report local news and information about what your representatives are doing in your state house and in Washington on social media. So it's very visual, it's very video-oriented, it's very modern. And we do that with the explicit goal of increasing informed voter turnout in key elections across the country. 
very cool. Anybody listening can understand exactly why we have invited you to join us on this little voyage of exploration and discovery. I like the name Courier Newsroom. When I was in high school and I started our, our student paper, I won uh, like a journalist of the year award from the Courier News in the middle of New Jersey someplace. <laughs> so there are, was, there are couriers everywhere. <laughs> well, this was back uh, in the Hoover administration, probably. <laughs> in any event, we are joined also by our friend, Simon Rosenberg, who's the president of NDN and the New Policy Institute. And as I regularly like to refer to him, the most optimistic man in Democratic (laughs) Party politics, which is a good thing. And I hope he's right. And Simon is, of course, elections being what they are in Las Vegas. And I just think (laughs) you're going to have to defend yourself, Simon. Yeah, I'm here for a a private speaking gig, but I've spent uh, a bunch of time yesterday with the Cortez Masto race. I'm here in a battleground state, probably in some ways, the most important center race in the country right now. And they feel really good. I mean, I know that the national narrative is sort of relentlessly negative about everything that involves Democrats right now. But Scott Fairchild, who's the campaign manager, we used to work together. He ran Cortez Masto's race last time. Every one of these races have been decided in Nevada by two points. You know, we keep winning by a point to two points. They think they're up two to three points. There's been polling showing that there's been movement towards her in recent weeks. And and part of what's happening now is that it's a very small state. They have a really big ground game. And that ground game is starting to reach a lot of people. And they're actually seeing it in polling that people are waking up and turning on. Uh, The second point I'll make is that their impression of the race here is that abortion really is this defining issue. And that with women and independent women, Republican women, they're door knocking and they're just saying, we don't even need to talk to you. We're voting for her. Every statewide official here for a Republican, every Republican candidate is a man. And there's been no olive branch here on these issues from the Republican Party. So their feeling is, and I spent a long time with Scott a couple of days, you know, yesterday, is that he said, look, I think we're going to win by two to three points. We feel really good. You know, Cortez, I saw Cortez Masto speak on a, on a private event two nights ago, and she was so confident and upbeat. And you can tell, right? I mean, We've all been doing this a long time, David. And I went into the campaign headquarters and everybody was smiling and there was good spirit, right? There were dogs running around, right? When you walk into a campaign that's losing, you can feel it. This campaign felt really, really good and everyone just seemed confident. So I think Democrats should feel better about that race in general. And and I'm, you know, hopeful because obviously if we win there, you know, we're going to keep the Senate. Tara, are pets in the office a sign of impending victory? (laughs) <laughs> I don't know. There's a lot of emotional support animals these days, but I think I do. I agree with Simon, though, having worked on uh, have, on a campaign in the past, that if if you feel it, you feel it if you're feeling really down and out and you feel it if there's really positive energy and momentum. And I think that's going to be razor thin either way. So I'm holding my breath as I hear you say that, Simon, but that's the best sign that I've heard out of Nevada for sure. If... Um... Cortez Massa loses, is the Senate lost? No. And let me just give you, I'll just do a quick thing and I'll turn it to Tara. Is that, look, I, the last two weeks have been very good. We've had very good polling in, for Democrats. And I think we just need to say this because there's just so much relentless negative noise in the system. I went and looked today, every single congressional generic, which is the Democrat, Republican, who you're going to vote for for Congress, that's been published on 538, that's not a Republican poll. Every single one has been positive for the Democrats. 
Today, the new CNN poll of likely voters had us up three. Republican polling outfit public opinion strategies had us up two among likely voters. And so even among likely voters now, which the, there's a shift from registered voters to likely voters, we get closer to the election. Even in the likely voter polls where we have two, three point leads, which the general feeling is if we're two to three points up, we have a very good chance of keeping the House, right? Not just the Senate. And so that those are good numbers for us. The second thing is in the Senate polling, we now have very sturdy leads, right? In Arizona, Colorado, Georgia, New Hampshire, Pennsylvania, and Washington, which if those races just come home, right, we keep the Senate. And then there's four races that are, you know, up for grabs that are competitive and, and toss-ups. And those are North Carolina, Nevada, Wisconsin, and what am I forgetting? I'm forgetting one, another one. Uh, I'll think of it in a second, but there are four. <laughs> I forgot my own talking points here. There are four races that are up for grabs. And so I think Democrats should feel really good about where we are right now. Everyone thought we didn't have a chance. I think we're likely to keep the Senate. The House is a toss-up. And Biden today has his highest job approval of the whole year today, right? So in addition to everything else, you know, his numbers keep coming up. And he's now at a point where the analysts on our side said he needs to get to 45, 46 for us to feel comfortable on election day. He's at 45 today, right? So generally there's a really good sense that we got a real we got a shot here and and we just gotta, you know, end really strong. All right, could you slap some reality into this, Matt? <laughs> <laughs> I will I do have I do have reactions. One, I am not someone who absorbs every poll because I have learned the hard way as so many have that you can't trust them fully. But they're they're important signals um, where they exist, and there is a difference between good polling and bad polling. But that said, I think it's it, it is a little bit more environmental at this stage. I don't want anybody to rest laurels on polling. There's still a lot of work to do over these last few weeks, but I, I do think that the signals are good on Biden's approval rating, which it is. It's extraordinary that it continues to grow. It makes sense given the progress and the achievements of the administration over the past few months. And yet also, I really don't think that this election is about Biden, the way that past midterms have been. I really don't. I think there's a real difference between that. And you'll see in just the ads and the communication online and offline uh, in both parties. Well, not both parties. I shouldn't say that. Democrats aren't really talking about Biden. Um, Republicans are, but not as much at the race level and at the candidate level. They're not even tying the candidates as much to him. You're seeing it somewhat with inflation and Bidenflation, things of that nature. But it's not nearly what you're used to seeing in past midterms, in my experience, in terms of the role that both parties um, leverage the president to play. If you like Deep State Radio, you'll want to check out World Review with Evo Dalder from the Chicago Council on Global Affairs. Each week, our friend Evo, former U.S. ambassador to NATO, talks with some of the world's leading reporters and commentators from the Financial Times, Washington Post, New York Times. Politico and Axios, to name just a few. Evo and a rotating panel of journalists offer in-depth analyses and diverse perspectives on the week's most important emerging global news stories and why they matter. If you are hungry for more context on world events making headlines, and you're here listening to Deep State Radio, so we think you probably are, you might want to subscribe to World Review with Evo Dalder wherever you get your podcasts. You can also watch a live recording of World Review every Friday morning at 10 a.m. Central at globalaffairs.org. I see all that. Obviously, complacency, Simon, would be a disaster. What are the things you're going to look at over the next three weeks that are going to tell you whether it's working, like in terms of early voting, in terms of um, grassroots efforts, in terms of 
whose October surprise is more of a surprise? You know, what are the things you're looking at? I'm going to make a sort of bold, informed prediction here. That is that I think we, if one side picks up anything at the end, I think it's going to be us. And and I think it's because the the most powerful force in this election right now is the fear of MAGA, the fear of the abortion restrictions, the fear of the Republicans taking away fundamental rights. And and what's amazing, I was on a call the other night with folks doing grassroots organizing for Sierra Club and Planned Parenthood and in Swing Left, and all of them said that their volunteer numbers are higher than they were at 2018, which was an incredible year for us. And I just think there is a lot of intensity in the family right now about this election. I don't think there's any complacency. I think there's, you know, we've raised unbelievable, our candidates have raised unbelievable amounts of money, which is giving us enough fuel to sort of end this thing really strong. And even just here in Las Vegas, their grassroots organizing is the biggest, they've built the biggest statewide operation in an off-year election than anybody's ever built. And they've been surprised at how many volunteers they have and how many people are door knocking. And so I think despite, again, this kind of negative national narrative and this idea that the Republicans were going to be the energized force, I just think we are motivated, we're fighting hard, we're ending strong. And remember, there were five House special elections, David, earlier this year since Roe ended. And in those five races, we our average overperformance over 2020 was seven points. And in Kansas, it was even more. And we know from the voter registration numbers, there's been a huge surge of women registering. So there is a lot of intensity on our side. The measures of these things are good for us. But as Tara said, this next month, is it's make or break, right? Everything we do, every dollar we give, every phone call we make, every door we knock on to make the difference between us keeping the House or keeping the Senate and, and disaster happening. What about you, Tara? What are you looking for? No, I, I agree with a lot of what Simon said. I think that the major story out of this election is going to be, like most elections, the role that women played in deciding the outcomes. Um, And I do, I am really, really, really heartened by the increased enthusiasm and activity among young women in particular, 18 to 24. We saw those numbers out of Kansas. Another caveat, Kansas, obviously the timing of that after the Dobbs decision was intense. There wasn't a candidate on the ballot there. So I don't think we will see that kind of spike everywhere, but I do think it's a good signal. And I do think that we are seeing increased engagement across our newsrooms at Courier. We have obviously doubled down on covering reproductive freedom and abortion and what's at stake in this election. I want to make sure that we also address the state elections and not just federal. Those are important. I feel like Democrats are in an unbelievably stronger position than we ever expected they would be in this year. And that's a really good thing. And I do think that we will keep and hopefully expand the Senate. There's structural challenges with the House. But at the state level, I don't know that state races have ever been more important or they've always been so important and they've never been um, so important, clearly, and invested in by Democrats as we're seeing this year. And that's a really positive shift. We're seeing more money and more energy go towards governor's races, attorney general, attorneys general, secretaries of state. These are critical roles at making sure that we have firewalls against election deniers who are running for office on the Republican side at every level. I am personally concerned about state legislative races and makeup because there are structural challenges there. And that's why it's so, so, so important that governors win in states like Pennsylvania and Wisconsin and Michigan and Arizona. So there is a firewall against abortion bans that will inevitably be passed by Republican-led state legislatures. And so I think that's so important. And I think that we're also seeing really good signs in the polling among those races. 
and enthusiasm around those, which I think is so important to keep going because we do tend to lose sight of the state ledge houses and power and that that sits in them. And because of the makeup of the Supreme Court in the federal courts today, we need to make gains in state houses. And so I, I'm not as confident about what we're going to see this year in those outcomes, but I am feeling hopeful based on the top of the ticket statewide races that are getting more investment than we usually see. So before I go back to Simon, let me ask you a follow-up question. If we're going to drive young voters, young voters don't watch the nightly news. Even old voters don't watch the nightly news. I mean, it's, the nightly news is only for like really, really old voters. And uh, they don't probably read the newspaper on, in, on paper. They probably are getting, I just saw a study the other day, a big chunk of their news off of Facebook and Twitter and Insta and TikTok. Do the campaigns get it? So communication strategy, how a campaign defines how they are going to communicate to all of the voters they need, where they're going to communicate to them, how what that is going to look like, that more often than not comes from the candidate themselves. Whether they're driving that strategy or it is a result of their personal relationship to understanding how information moves today, it's why John Fetterman is running such an unbelievably successful social media-driven campaign. I would call that a social media first campaign. He clearly understands the attention economy. We also know on the other side of the spectrum, Donald Trump really understood how to maximize attention in a digital social first environment. And so, and then you look at other candidates where they struggle and campaigns that they struggle. It's often because the candidates or the elected officials themselves are not native to social media. They might dismiss it. We all live in our own echo chambers today. And so it's that this has been an uphill battle I've been fighting for 10 years on the, on the left in this country is trying to increase the attention spent, the resources spent, the investment made in reaching people where they're getting their information today and how they're getting that information. Because we are all, by and large, passive news consumers today. We are just getting filtered what we want based on algorithms and newsletters we sign up for that is proactive, but we are no longer proactively, more often than not, going to specific web websites or television channels to get information. We have these in our hands all day long, these smartphones, and they are the source of the information. And they're also the apps that we're on are delivering us a curated experience. So if you don't understand that and you don't understand that most of the voters you need are not in the curated echo chamber you are in, you're not going to have a smart playbook to be able to access them and get that information in front of them. And so I, I think that some campaigns are doing this better than others, but it always comes down to leadership. And I say the same thing about the committees. I think that we are challenged by not having more modern strategic direction and investment in social media and online communications because the vast majority of money that is raised and spent in elections on the left is still predominantly spent on television, which is not where you are going to reach most Americans today. You know, Simon, I, I'm not sure if you, I've just met Tara here, but but I, maybe, you know, you know her a little better. You've heard the words between the lines that I did, which is that politicians who are as old as you and me need to go home. <laughs> they, they need to adapt. Yeah. yeah. They, they, they need, we need people who natively instinctively understand that there's new communications channels 
that the phenomenon, this phenomenon of virality, which is really emotion driven, it's triggered by the things that motivate you to hit like, hit retweet, hit share with my friends and so forth, you know, repost it. And so if you don't do that, we're just not going to get those other, you know, the young voters in particular who would who would define the whole thing. If the young voters showed up <laughs> in the percentage that older voters showed up, Democrats will win every election from now on. Yes. And more young voters showed up in 2018 and 2020 than ever before since the age dropped to 18 in this country. I am convinced that we are going to see that trend continue because younger generations, too, are so much more socially engaged on political issues. They're they're less partisan. They're less party driven. But my God, do they care about climate change? Do they care about abortion access? Do they care about gun control? These issues that have directly impacted their young lives. And they have been frustrated to not see as much action by older generations who hold power in this country. They give me so much hope. And I also learn so much from them because I'm 36 years old. I can't keep up with 18-year-olds anymore in the way that they communicate, but I have to for work. So I try very hard. But the pace of innovation and decentralization of media and information today is so unbelievably fast that in order to retain or gain power in this country, we have to build infrastructure to keep up. And I have not seen that be invested in at the level it needs to be on the left. So, David, I'll just speak briefly because Tara just covered all the bases here is that I, as you know, I'm the most optimistic guy in the Democratic Party. So I try to only convey positive sentiment these days because there's so much negative stuff. But after the 2004 election, I created an organization called the New Politics Institute, which did academic level studies on changing demography, changing media. And we produced papers about how to make viral videos, how to, you know, and we showed examples, right? So we did our first briefing on viral videos and virality, to use the term you use, in 2007. And there were people like us, and I did all the training for social media or new media, as we called it in those days, for the DNC in the 2007-2008 cycle. I was the trainer on new media, new demography for the Democratic Party. And what's incredible to me, and one of the reasons that Tara and I have sort of connected in the last few months, is our collective just disappointment in the pace of the transition in the Democratic Party on these matters, given that our party has so many more young voters, right? I mean, we have a, we have a, there's an urgency for us to get this right far more than on the Republican side. And Trump, despite his age, has been probably the master practitioner of this kind of new, as she called it, attention economy, everything else. We have a lot of work to do here. And there are some structural issues having to do with the way consultants get paid and a lot of old consultants kind of hanging on to old models that we have to break through. And I'm really proud that in 2018 at the DCCC, we created a whole different model for how consultants were compensated and to break the hold of the of the TV people, frankly, over our politics. And in that election, right, we got we won by eight and a half points nationally. Our performance with young people was better than even under Obama, by the way, in terms of percentages. And so among 18 to 44 year olds. And and that was on purpose, right? We designed a different kind of way of engaging, as Tara was saying. This is still not the norm. And and I will just recommend to your to the audience today, there are two campaigns if you want to sort of see the future, the Fetterman campaign and Beto O'Rourke's campaign. Beto O'Rourke is producing extraordinary daily, almost daily 
powerful videos and the most powerful videos are ones where he has Republicans at his events who say, I'm now for Beto and they explain why and the event's going on. You know, it's real, right? It's authentic. It's really happening. It's not an actor. It's not a fake. And what's interesting is now Fetterman's campaign has now picked those up and is doing them. I mean, they're, they're so effective. Those two campaigns are going to be studied by everybody. And I do think, Tara, we've crossed the Rubicon, I hope, this cycle with the success. I think the Fetterman campaign has really been exemplar and, and has done things that have been so powerful that it's going to actually change the way future campaigns are run in a very positive way. I hope. I mean, that's my my. Well, and the more the more candidates there are under 50 years old. Yeah. They're going to change it because they think about information yeah. differently. There, yeah, there exactly. it is. There it is, Simon. That's what I knew she was saying. <laughs> um, uh, and I, I agree because the person who led the way with this or one of the people who led the way with this is AOC. I live in New York and watched it. And I'm a big AOC fan. Some people aren't, but I am. But she understands how to communicate regularly with her people. I'm not just talking about campaigning. She talks about what does this bill mean for you? How do we solve this problem? And she does it in a live Insta stream or whatever she does it in, and it holds. This is the point in the podcast where we normally take a break. Those of you regular Deep State Radio listeners, you know that. And you want to come back because, you know, Simon and Tara are great. And I, I just already know that this podcast and this look at the election and its aftermath is going to be terrific. And you don't want to miss it. So you got to be a member to get all of it, to get the last third of it. So click, go to the dsrnetwork.com, click on membership, sign up, become a member and be able to listen to it all. If you haven't, say goodbye right now. And if you're a member, stand by. We'll continue in a moment. 